the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host. And today we have Peter Hewson, PhD. He is the Chief of Operations at Backbone, uh, where he oversees professional services, sales, and partnerships. Um, in addition to that, he has a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from UC Santa Barbara and a Master's of Science in Aerospace Engineering. So you were doing some subcontracting for NASA. Um, he is also the co-founder of the Northern Lights Music Festival in partnership with Star Hill Presents and Red Light Management, having co-authored AB 2020, allowing Northern, Light, Northern Nights to be the first festival with legal cannabis sales. Um, you are the co-founder and CEO of One Log Cannabis Business Park, compliance officer at Mess Ventures, and to date, oh, Peter, you successfully acquired over 50 cannabis licenses across the supply chain. That... That's a feat. <laughs> and welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Peter, one of the first questions I always like to ask my guests is, how did you become interested in cannabis, even even before the business side of it? I mean, I guess it's, it's the age-old story of uh, naughty over older siblings of friends. Um, and, yeah, you know, we actually had, it was in high school, I was like 16 and somehow we got, it was it was actually a rock, like a, like just a normal rock you find on the road with someone had stuck a little metal bowl on it with a hole on the other end. Uh-huh. So we had this little rock pipe, sounds a little cracky, but um, it was just a rock pipe. And uh, I just remember it was more, I guess you could say my brain works. It goes really, really fast all the time. And sometimes the kind of this slows it down a little bit and, kind of be more present maybe is the word mm-hmm. um, so yeah that was really what it came down to was just slowing down a little bit the mind yeah oh, I don't I don't yeah. I don't think that the pipe thing sounds cracky at all I think like <laughs> <laughs> it was, I was an apple it was a rock <laughs> yeah whatever you could I I I too was a precocious teen but I actually had my dad is is from Iran and so they used to have this little they they didn't use it I guess my grandmother did but it was this little brass water pipe that they had as a decoration in my parents bookcase and I snagged that when I was 14. <laughs> so it's yeah, like Yeah, exactly. You know what? That reminds me. I got so remember we chillums, right? I remember everyone was like, "Oh, toilet paper roll." I was like, "No, like paper towel roll." Like the middle of it, the little cardboard piece. Yeah. So I remember making a pipe. I remember making a pipe out of that thing, and it was so big, right? So it was around your lips. And I went outside. I think I was grounded. Um, <laughs> and I went. I went downstairs under the under the house to smoke. And then I remember I I, I washed my hands and I brushed my teeth and I thought I was all good, but I forgot to wash the outside of like around my lips where the toilet paper. And my mom was like why does your lips smell like that? I was like, no, I just cleaned everything. <laughs> uh. I remember those in the dorms, and we used to stick a dryer sheet in them. Bounce sheets, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> dryer sheets, for sure. That was the oldest trick, absolutely. Dryer sheets on the end of a toilet, that, that, that takes us back. Oh, man, those were the days. And I think about back then, because you didn't, I mean... I remember the first time I went, I'm from Upper Michigan, so when I went down to Ann Arbor was the first time I had a real pipe, 
because everything else otherwise was just entirely mm-hmm. makeshift. And you, I think about like some of the things that we used as pipes and and off gassing and and my God. <laughs> oh, we got creative. You know what? My, I think my favorite of all time is probably we used to go and a lot of why I'm here today. We used to go to Reggae on the River back in the day, and so a bunch of we. I, I'm, I've been into really hardcore uh, Jamaican dancehall. Uh-huh. And um, and so we used to smoke a chawa. And a chawa is a coconut with a bamboo out of it. And that's what all the Rasta used to smoke out. So one of my buddies, would always play new records that we'd get at Amoeba, new dancehall records, and smoke out the chawa. That's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That makes sense. That all comes together very nicely, doesn't it? Right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I, I keep telling ourselves, right? It's all for a reason. Oh, it is. It is. Well, and how, when did you decide to, to actually work in the cannabis industry? What was it that drew you to that? Um, I finished my PhD, 10 years of school. I'd wanted to throw the biggest party I could. And like I kind of told you guys earlier a few of us and our friends we maybe we lost our we misplaced our marbles up on the south river at right on the river many years back so we decided we wanted to go find those marbles and um we started northern night music festival um and so we you know we it's right on the border of mendocino humboldt and if you know anything about that area right on the river was a really big deal there yeah. um, especially for the community a lot of people couldn't, you know, you couldn't go to back in the day. You, you didn't talk about what you did necessarily. Right. If mm-hmm. you were a grower. Um, and so your kind of identity in the community was, you know, I'm the vendor coordinator right here on the river. I'm the fence crew. Shout out fence crew. Um, uh, right on the river. And so when that festival uh, stopped, stopped in 2009, it was almost kind of like with my festival. Mm-hmm. And so when we got there, um, you know, the first year, some folks checked us out, um, lost our ass per usual startup promoter. Um, but, um, second year, a bunch of the local boys came down and said, Hey, we were, we were at your event last year. We definitely didn't know it. And we definitely didn't pay, but we all snuck in anyway. Um, we had a good time and you guys are cool. Um, but you guys need a lot of help. Can we help you, you know, plan some fence posts and get your stuff going because you need it. And so I said, sure, like ask for a ticket, right? And, you know, it's, it goes a long way, right, to have people and people just want to be part of it. You know, they want to build, they want to just hang out, they want to be treated like part of the team. And so they just started to really get to know a lot of the local crew. And right around 2015, when the legalization started to kind of come out, um, you know, that's when... I was getting permits in both counties for this festival. I was talking to the cops. I was talking to the board of supervisors. I was talking to everybody. So like, Peter, you know these these regulators. Go talk to them for us and get us a permit. I said, okay, that sounds like a interesting project. And so we just started that. But per usual, right? When you're and when the industry's starting like that, you're not just getting a permit. You're helping them start their business from the ground up. Right. And, um, and you're so, paving the way for a lot of other people to be able to do what you're doing. I hope so. And that's what, yeah, that's what I hope that we'll continue to open doors. Lord knows that, you know, a lot of people have opened doors for me, you know, even 
you know, I talk about local growers, talk about, you know, Mac Briggs and, you know, Nat Boutrick from a drone and just like folks who really, they open the door to this industry for me in a lot of ways. And so my job now is to just keep the door open. I'm a glorified uh, doorstop. Well, and you also, Ian, in addition to doing all the stuff up north, you were you were part of the reason that they were able to have the first sales at um, at the big festival in the park, Outside Lands, right? Well, put it this way, we were we were we. Were, I mean, we were doing two fifteen zones, mm-hmm. right? Um, earlier than that, let's say. Um, and, you know, Emerald Cup, we were really close and tight with that crew. Uh, and, Tim's a great guy. You know, yeah. Just, oh, yeah. I mean, another one, another legend who opened the door for me as well. Um, and, you know, I would say we we had had our eyes on this the whole time. We were doing these 215 zones. We had our program. We knew how to do sponsorships. We, we kind of we understood how to do it um, and how to set it up, but we just had to be careful. And so when these temporary cannabis event permits came out with the legislation, they, you know, the state could only govern the state. They left a lot to local jurisdictions in California. So when they said for the temporary events, they weren't going to overstep their boundaries. So they said you could do it at a fairground because that's state owned at a state fairground. Right. So they had jurisdiction over it so they could allow it. But without all the other localities, counties and cities, they were trying to get their first, you know, cultivation ordinance, right? Retail ordinances up and running. They didn't want to hear about cannabis events yet. So as people, Humboldt was super progressive, right? They were always on top of it. They had the first EIR. They got ahead of it and it's really helped catapult Humboldt and be able to get them into, you know, they've got a really big square footage in Humboldt because they got ahead of it and they got a lot of people permitted early. And so um, Steve Lazar up there was very receptive when I was saying, look, like, this is coming, you know, um, cannabis events are going to be a thing. There's already some regulations out for fairgrounds. And so I started working with Sawa, Ibrahim, and Martin Kaufman, uh, legends themselves um, in the Bay Area. Um, and they had also been really interested in working with another planet. Um, and wanting to do something at Outside Lands, I really wanted to do it Northern Nights. We had a couple projects together, so we said, sat down with Sawa, with a few other folks, attorneys, and said, how should we do this to be able to, you know, sell weed at just private land, right? Normal events outside of fairgrounds. And so we iterated, spent some time in Sacramento, and we got it approved. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what happened in 20, 2019 because Northern Nights is actually two weeks or three weeks right before Outside Lands. Mm-hmm. So Outside Lands got a lot of the credit for quote unquote, you know, because they're so big, but technically Northern Nights three weeks before was the first one to sell weed at a festival. But no, little known fact. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, anytime anything happens in San Francisco, they think it's and and as somebody who's, I just I just moved from San Francisco to Oakland a couple of years ago. But being in San Francisco for twenty three years, it's like when it happens in San Francisco, it's always the most visible, right? It's like, oh, this was the first. No, no, it wasn't. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, it was major in both friends. I mean, look, there's, just, there's a lot of nuances to the whole thing. And, totally. you know, the good thing about it was they allowed it to happen and we kind of figured it out because the whole model was never really built for a concessionaire. It was really made for much more trade shows, right? You know, right. the High Times Cups and the Emerald Cups. That was all they knew. But this whole concept of a concessionaire, right, yeah. uh, with one distributor, uh, wasn't really necessarily what things were set up for. So we played with it, um, got an idea for it. Um, and, you know, really, it's tough, though, right? Because everyone's like, well, how much money are you going to make? It's like, well, guess what, man? Hold on. Proof of concept, number one. Number two, if you do cannot compare it to alcohol, like why? For various reasons. Number one. Can you imagine if you had you if you went to a festival and there was one beer booth way out in the corner in the woods, and she didn't get beer anywhere else? Yeah, right. Like that's what these zones have been to start here. You, they're just out. So not a fair comparison yet, but 2020 was going to be our year for both events outside of the northern end. We were going to try and go for like multiple areas, right? So that you actually can sell and more you know it's cool right branded branded activations at different stages that's nothing oh, new no not um, at all and it kind of it, it also caters to the interests of the people attending because some may be more attracted to like a sun-grown brand others might you know be like say if burner had you know a booth at a place they might there be you go more, yeah and and you can also do it by stage right if a certain stage usually has a certain type of music then there's a certain type of clientele you can cater to the clientele there's a lot of really creative ways um that you can do that and so that that's you know that's where we're headed that's where we'd like to go um and you know there's there's i know i know the big groups are all going to be coming in um soon into this space because you know we we laid the groundwork and i hope to be able to participate yeah well, it's, uh, for me like i've i've done event production through the years and especially when something is first starting out I always say, hey, it's a success if I break even, you know, but what do you, what do you look at, right. <laughs> you know, because usually you lose your pants on the first one because people are still catching on to it. But what do you see as like earmarks of success through that process? Um, earmarks of success. Um, um, not getting shut down. Yeah, huge. One. Um, passing the audits after the fact. Um, I think laying down the framework for all of the different pieces of the puzzle. Um, you know, alcohol, there's really only three. You've got the promoter, you've got the concessionaire, and you've got the distributor. Um, but in the cannabis framework, you've got the distributor, you've got the retailer, concessionaire, you've got the promoter, but there's this cannabis event organizer. Mm -hmm. So there's this fourth piece of the puzzle. And when you have a fourth piece of the puzzle, it's exponential, the amount of agreements, right? Because now you have, you know, there's one with each one, there's one with two of them. And then there's also the agreements with the vendors outside and the sponsors, right? And so... It just it added a layer of complexity, but when you sometimes you look at a layer of complexity, there's also an opportunity to flex the system. I guess is how I might call it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that was a big one, just to get all the agreements properly done, 
and in place and to kind of set the standard of how this can work and that, you know, it's not rocket science, right? People are going to figure it out. Right. But I think it's just all the compliance pieces. We didn't have a metric at that time either. And, you know, you have to get everything. <laughs> and then for you, I'm not going to name any names, but when someone showed up with a moment to punch them, so it's like getting the idea of like, come on, like you get charged for that, right? So you get, we call it touch points in the industry, right? And if right. you show up and someone has to touch a thousand individual pre-rolls, you should be charged accordingly. But a lot of that is the first time intaking that much cannabis into an event. So it was just a lot of learning experiences on that front, right? Right, right. Well, and another thing I was wondering too, because when I think about like a festival atmosphere, and, you know, it's like you have the beer tents and stuff like that. And as we know, like, moderation is key, you know. Um, but when you're considering vending cannabis at an event, you're not going to be, nine times out of ten, you're not going to be dealing with the same complications that you are with alcohol because somebody smokes too much, they fall asleep. Um, you know, it's it's... Well, when you're looking at like municipalities, like city family and stuff, what were what were some of the biggest concerns that they had around having events that allowed the vending of cannabis? Oh, sure, sure. So, you know, because, you know, we've been living with like events that have had alcohol and, you know, it's like you person can can put themselves in a bad situation if they have drink more than they should right but when we're looking at cannabis events like it's it's kind of a matter of educating you know city and county to know that it's it's by far a safer option because you're not going to be having anybody smoking too much and getting in a fight or getting really sick or something like that um but they're still going to be having because it's new to them they have a little bit of reservation around, you know, creating policy around it. And I'm just wondering, like, what were some of the biggest worries that policymakers had around creating the ability to have these events with cannabis? Yeah, I mean, look, as a promoter back in the day, right, you know, the biggest things is, you know, it's bad batches of edibles. Right, that's what really got people sick, and it wasn't from the edibles themselves, but mm-hmm. mixed with a bunch of alcohol and a little bit of other things, oh, they can be horrible. pretty harmful. Yeah, for sure. Right, and so overdosed, like not overdosed, but overly dosed, if you will, edibles. Mm-hmm. I think that was always the concern for us. Um, you know, a, a one bad batch of brownies at an event, you know, you can get a bad rap at your event for years. Yeah. Right. And not, not, not even that you sold it. Right. But just the fact that that happened and a bunch of people got sick. Yeah. I mean, that's why I don't um, eat homemade edibles anymore. <laughs> oh, I know. Right. I, I'm so with you on that. Um, you know, and that's the other thing, right. I mean, that's the other thing we learned. It's like the proper, here's, here's a good example, right. Um, it's the margins that you can make at cannabis concessions. It's, 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 if you look at alcohol, right. What it costs, what a few bucks, to pour it, but it's 15 bucks at an event. That's a pretty heavy margin, right? Right. Um, but so what's really natural to like a, to a promoter is going to be like, oh, you're selling, I don't even think you can do kegs, but if you had the concept of selling a, you know, something in a can or a beverage, like a THC beverage or a cannabis beverage, that's like, okay, I know how to mark that up. 
right? I've done that before. Mm-hmm. But when you start talking about the, you know, the cost of goods on vapes, on high-end flour, on all these different products, right, it, it becomes a little bit different model too, right? Um, there's always the, the other concept is like, do you really need to give a 10-pack of edibles out at an event, right? right. Which is normal, or are you going to do a bunch of two-packs because they'll come back for more and it's less dosage. So there's just a whole kind of array of new products from a concessionaire standpoint that you're not used to because you don't smoke alcohol, you don't, you know what I'm saying? So like mm-hmm. it's a brand new, it's just different. It's a little bit different. There's still a lot of data that we need to kind of figure that out to really understand what are the right products and what capacity. So what I'm to, hearing is maybe with uh to to allay the fears of of city officials and to discourage overconsumption having smaller amounts for sale and maybe having the price structure so that people aren't buying like a ton of stuff and taking more than they need might be the way to go yeah i i think so right i think actually san francisco actually limited it more than the state um when they they decided how much people could buy so yeah, right. I think there's, yeah, it, I don't think there's really huge fear, especially in the regulated industry, that anyone's going to go overdose, right, on cannabis. Right. I just think it's more, um, it's just still stigma, right? It's still, it's still there. And so, you know, I think the goal is to just try to have products that are quality enough that, you know, you know, that bag of weed you want to put in your underwear is probably not as good as what they're going to have at the <laughs> at the show, the fresh. They're gonna have the show, right? Right. So if you can get that point across, then it's a win. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, that was one of the things that even we were dealing with when we were looking at legalization, right? There's a lot of um, there was a lot of worry around how people were going to handle themselves, which, you know, as as the, one of the former chairs of the legalization task force in San Francisco, working with Department of Public Health, I used to just tell them. You know, education is what we need to keep people safe. You know, let's have conversations about how many milligrams, you know, are right for an individual and how to how the individual would discern that. And it's it always it's funny because like when I think about what my first dispensary experience and there was no conversations about what was appropriate dosage. And at that point in time, I mean, I did, I I had used cannabis recreationally for years, but I was actually using it medicinally because I was going through chemo. And um, I hadn't encountered, that was my, that was my first encounter using something out of a dispensary. Before that, I just had my guy, you know, and uh, nobody mm-hmm. talked about dosage. And I took too much of, I had this drink, I don't think, even think they make it anymore, called Irish Moss. And um, it it was like I had half of the drink and I went to go see my oncologist and I was so high. And to think now when I look back on it, I'm like, I didn't ask. It didn't even occur to me to ask about milligrams of THC and how that would feel in my body. And now like when I ask people about that, when I'm, I'm working with them to determine dosage um, and they look at me blankly like milligrams what? And I'm like, how can you not think about that? But then I think, wow, I didn't consider that when I wasn't immersed in the work. You know, you don't, you, you think about it with alcohol because when we were kids and we were in health class, they had the conversation about, you know, 
the shot of hard liquor versus the glass of wine versus the glass of beer and how that all translates, you know, with your body and the mindfulness and everything. But we we don't have enough conversations about that. And I think that that's something that, you know, especially with like my work with city officials that I've really tried to do because if you have educated officials, you have more educated policy rather than them getting their information secondhand from somebody who may have other than the best interests of like the truth in mind. Right. Yep. Sorry. I just went on a little deep dive there. <laughs> but... No, no, no. I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. I mean, it's uh I don't know. Like, even when I'm talking to the press, right. People are asking, well, how are you going to deal with the alcohol? And it's like, look, it's a festival. Right. Right. Like you, you get all these people trying to ask you, well, well, how are you going to control? It's like, it's a festival. You're not going to control. You're going to contain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because at a festival, like, you know, if you're, and, and I, and, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I, I hate comparing alcohol to cannabis because as you, as we both know, there's the comparison is really not that great. Um, it's not equal. It's very different, but because we're, those are like, it's alcohol and cannabis that are the available at events and people are using them in similar ways. You know, it's, it's, but it's like, you know, you have, if to you, to go to the beer tent, you have to have an armband, right? And then you have more control than with how, how, as, as far as like people going into the, because it wouldn't be, I want to call it a 215 area, but it's not anymore. <laughs> Those days have passed. But as far as like, do you, do you armband people who are able to come into the cannabis consumption area or how does that work? Yeah. Oh, see. Um, you get separate, you get separate bands um, when you get in there. I think it, it's just a 21 plus one though. Yeah, well, I would imagine. Yeah, and if you see somebody who has both armbands on, then there's more mindfulness of like seeing if somebody is actually okay enough to purchase again, right? Right, for sure. And I mean, you can make the call, right? I mean, with cannabis, it's a little bit easier, right? It's like you can see someone's. You know, someone's uh, had a little bit too much, right? It's probably not the best to sell weed. It's the same thing as alcohol. I mean, those things are, you know, you got to judge it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we used to do. I, when I used to work behind the bar um, at Apothecarium, somebody came in and they looked like they'd, especially on, if I work Sundays, because, you know, people would be going to their bottomless mimosa brunches and then, you know, toddling up to the dispensary. And I was like, eh, if you look like you already... If you couldn't, if you couldn't handle what you had going on already, I probably wasn't going to be selling you anything. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to do a little shift. We've been talking about a little bit about vending at events, but I'd like to hear about Backbone and what's going on with your work with supply chain management because. When I was reading about that, that really illustrated for me the maturing of the industry. 
especially with um, the fact that I was looking at your team, and it looks like you have a lot of seasoned professionals, not just in the tech field, but also in the cannabis field, which I think is awesome because I always, you know, there's that saying about, you know, how the wise person surrounds themselves with experts. They identify their experts. And um, you, we've been seeing a lot of patterns in companies. I see where it seems like you have a lot of people that are have a lot of experience in other fields, but not necessarily in cannabis. Or you have people who have been our seasoned cannabis veterans, but no, don't necessarily have like the technical business expertise that they need to take them to the next level. And it seems like you have a really strong combination of both for the company. Well, or we act or we complement each other, right? Exactly. I mean, I think what you'll find in this team, it's a, well, <laughs> I, I guess put it this way. This company was started sitting Southern Humboldt trying to, trying to understand where the weed went. Yeah. Um, after it left the farm, right? And just didn't really have, you know, you just split with the manufacturer or you just, you know, you grew something the knife if someone would have told you that that one harvest that you did in that one special you know terroir of your farm absolutely is perfect in a specific co2 extraction or solventless mechanism right and if you would have been so someone would have told you that they'd be like hey do that again right mm -hmm. um and so trying to get that feedback loop right and so we you know we we're, I was managing a good amount of licenses at the time. Um, we, in Humboldt, we had to start with SICPA, which is like a, like they govern cigarettes and other things. And it was a really crappy, pro I, I mean, I remember using that system, trying to figure out what happened in 2017 and then, right, filed everything. And I was looking at it and I was like, I don't even know what we just did. I don't know how regulators are going to figure out what we just did. Um, but then metric came along, a little bit more intuitive. But even metric itself, right? It's, oh, there's it was so many people. Well, who it was built for It was built for cultivation. Yeah, it was built for retail and cultivation. All these seed-to-sale systems were built. This concept of a package was was made for transfers, right? But so this whole idea of a package from a package is kind of an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And so there's a reason it doesn't really make sense for the center of the supply chain. And so that goes for most of the seed to sale systems, right? They're just, they're very light, very shallow. They cover the compliance bases, but not the business bases. And then you look at ERPs and, you know, these big monster Goliath systems, which certainly can handle the business aspect of it. But cannabis, we don't need that yet, right? And it, it's a little too much. And so there's kind of middle ground, which was like, how do you get something that's intuitive for the operator? but that is deep enough that your finance team and your accountants and your C-suite are going to say, okay. So that's when, you know, we tapped, you know, just, we're just a bunch of operators and we just tapped Silicon Valley, our network and our CEO, Josh, he had come off an early exit marketing analytics or sales analytics. Um, I think it's not part his, his the company Heighton is not part of the uh, LinkedIn navigator um, deal space. And um, we had, we told him about the problem and he kind of reluctantly said both. Unfortunately, I didn't want to do another startup, but fortunately for you guys, I wanted to solve this problem in NetSuite 20 years ago where he was head of analytics at NetSuite. He 
he had always had this concept that look, if you build it for the finance guys, right, it's it's going to be great for them, but that's not necessarily for operations. Right. And so, but if you build it for the operations team and the boots on the ground and the graveyard shift, you build it for them and it meets finance needs, the win-win. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where we did, and we focused on visualizing, right, and making it really easy for the operators. And so that's where a lot of this started. We interviewed a lot of folks um, and just really started to get a deep understanding of what the problem was. We brought in some really strong folks from Sage and into it. And we started building. And the cool thing about Backbone is that it's not there's no like there's no concept of a plant or a package or or a gummy. It's it's just objects, right? And you represent in processes. You represent you make them whatever you want them to be. And so it's it's a much more enterprise approach to it. But we started on the operator side, looking at the seed to sale inventory, et cetera. So it's been a really cool kind of blend of both, like you, like you were saying, where the technology team has really taught all of us on the cannabis and operations side to say, hey, this is how you scale. This is how finance, this is how your general ledger works, right? Even the word ERP, people throw that around and it's like, uh, no, it's not an ERP. No, you don't have a general ledger in your system. That is not any of that. You have an inventory module. And so just all of the basics there, we've really gotten, you know, from quality management systems, manufacturing, you know, material resource planning, just all. And on that's for us. And on the flip side, you're teaching these developers on what a batter and a shatter and a butter is and <laughs> teaching them the butter and bud batter and batter it depends on the part of the state you're in and if you're in oklahoma you call it caviar right right oh that's funny it's like i i think about like uh when i when i was behind the bar and all the tech people that i probably sold a lot of that stuff to <laughs> right yeah 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 no absolutely and and that's the big thing though right i think we've been culturally sound i think you know you've got a bunch of people who were kind of you know wanted something different and work a little bit more meaningful work than than silicon valley classic can provide and then you had a bunch of us operators that you know we can work for one company right but is that really the best use of our gifts or of our skills or you can actually help the industry and help many companies and so it's kind of a cool blend of both sides of the equation saying I'm not quite happy in this but unified we provide a very unique team a unique offering that really has a boots on the ground perspective but at the same time knows how to scale it yeah yeah I I I really see like the blend of talents is like this next step in innovation and maturity of our of our work and when you question no what are you gonna say I'm sorry No, no, no. It's just, I guess it's it's the fundamentals, right? You can have the magic, you can have the fanciest stuff in the world, right? But if your operators can't use it. And so I think that's still like, yes, we've got very powerful, you know, sub-ledger integrations. And yes, we are, you know, we can compete with the bigger players in the space, but none of that matters if the operators can't use the system. Right. And so I think in more ways than one, we're still there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whether it's seed to sale, backbone, you name it. Like we're still in like getting operators to use the system. 
Yeah, it, there's definitely, we have a ways to go. It's Everything is kind of in its infancy. But kind of riffing off of, you know, things actually working. Um, just thinking Well, it's about, live data capture. It's, yeah. It's live data capture, right? And so people charge, what happens is you get this company that's charged by user. And when you charge by user, by default, you're not going to try and teach more people how to use the system because you're limited by users. Right. So when you're trying to capture live data, the more people that are using it, so we don't charge by good art. The entire goal is to get as many people using the system because then you have a team and you're capturing more live data. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, you're, in another life, I used to work in IT and um, I used to do a lot of the big software purchases and I remember like, how much it would cost to get so many seats. And so we'd be like kind of going back and forth as to who really needed to have access to that system, you know? And then it'd be like later on, oh, we should have added so-and-so because they actually need to see this and we can't rely on them. Well, it's funny. (laughs) You can't. No, it's funny. I, 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 and what's funny is sometimes we'll go to implementations, right? And people, you know, and I've, have businesses too. I'm like, no, you're the computer person and you're the inventory person. You guys are working, right? And it's funny, you get there and you're working and then, you know, you get like some of the maybe younger folks or other people, they, they come up and you kind of see them creeping behind you, kind of looking over your shoulder like, hey, like, is that backbone? Like, I've been looking at it. But because you're there, typically no one would spend the time to do it. But if you're there, you're like, here, man, like, this is how you use it. And just by being there, you can potentially get two or three new users that the boss never thought we were going to be capable of doing it. And so trying to empower those boots on the ground operators, sometimes like they have really, really good ideas about how things should go and how they should be measured and maybe ideas on how to do things differently, but they don't always want to step up, right? They don't want to be on the hook for messing anything up. But if you have a system that can kind of really show everybody, say, Hey, look, like if we do this differently, like, see what happens and you kind of empower the, I don't know, the group problem solving, right? right. Not this kind of hierarchical, hier- uh, top down approach. It's really a bottoms up approach. Well, that sounds like an opportunity for professional development. There you go. That's exactly what it is. And that's really in more ways than one, you look at like social equity and everything else right now, right? There's so many cool things happening there and, and there's just really good opportunities for professional development with tools right now and, and get a lot of more people just kind of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I think that professional development, I foresee it. Shout out Amanda Friedman is leading the charge over at Cookies is doing some green flower media right now in a really cool program. We're doing that one log with trim for cultivation, meadow for retail and backbone in the middle. We've got all the licenses there and we're doing, we're hosting a, there's like seven events of green flower media this year where we're going to be taking folks, for workforce development, teaching them how to operate software in each portion of the supply chain. Oh, that's awesome. That's really necessary. I mean, that, that kind of engagement is is what creates more retention because that's one of the, the biggest things that I see people talking about where they're running businesses is just the high turnover in companies, you know, and, and a lot of it has to do with people getting bored and not feeling like, I mean, you can't work at a place for a year and a half and expect to be sea level when you're done, but you should be able to ha- be learning something while you're on the job and feel like you have things to, to add to your resume so that you can grow in the industry. 
Absolutely. And we're just, we're still just getting that right. There's just so much to learn. That's fun. That's what makes it exciting is that no one's telling you necessarily how it's supposed to work right now. Mm-hmm. You are saying, well, this is what feels right. And let's adapt. And, you know, the, the writing is not on the wall yet. No, no, it's not. And when we're looking at systems like metric, which I believe their contract is coming up with the state very soon, do you think that that's what we're going to be using for our seed to sale in the future? Or do you think that there are, there are other things that are up and coming that are maybe a little easier to use? I'm going to take my battles here and choose my words carefully. Yeah, um, I, I totally get that. It, that's a, I was actually going to say, and if you don't want to answer that question, I totally get that too. No, it's like, put it this way. Put it this way. I Everyone can turn around and say, well, my UI is so much better than metric, and this works so much better than metric. It's like, okay, well, why don't you try and deal with every single state right now Yeah. and manage all of these crappy APIs that people are building and overloading the system, right? I'm just saying, like, sit in their shoes for a moment and see what they're doing and what they're dealing with. And if you've done that and then you're going to come criticize someone's software, like, sure. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Um, but I would say that you kind of have to pick your lane. Yeah. And so I think that, that you know, I, where facts in the past have made a mistake is they tried to do both. They tried to support the private industry and they tried to also be the regulatory system. And they failed. And there's a reason why nobody likes them and they're slowly getting to place. If you stay in your lane, and don't try to do both because it's a huge conflict of interest, right? On one side, you're sitting there saying that I am, I am trying to help the people. And the other side is I am trying to regulate the people. And that's a very, very fine line to be walking. It's not to say that people are not going to be able to do both. Right. I just historically, the folks who try to do both have failed. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a good system of checks and balances either. Right. Well, who knows, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you can call it blockchain. You can just call it a system of record, right? And as long as it's transparent and nobody on the regulatory side is messing with it and, um, you know, then that's the name of the game. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, what do we call it? We call it radical transparency. I like that. I mean, and I think in many ways, like stuff like, you know, radical transparency and our equity programs and even down to like, you know, the compassion programs we have. And I've, I've said this before in other episodes, but, you know, as, and I was more part of the movement before I was involved in the industry and I see them as, you know, together, but separate in many ways. But, um, you know, we have a unique opportunity to change the way we do business and not just in the cannabis realm. No, we can set an example in cannabis for what industry and how agriculture and technology and big money can actually potentially, big and small money, can coexist. Yeah. Yeah. I I can, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think that... That could just go in in many different directions. And I feel like there are so many people that are passionate about doing it right and and willing to be involved to do that, that it's it's a it's a huge opportunity. 
and and just kind of you know going back to like when we were talking about metric it's like i totally see where you're coming from because you know there's been a lot of just even since legalization people getting really frustrated with the way you know business is done and the the prices like from the consumer side um when we first started legalization i remember having especially a lot of my senior um customers you know it's so so weird cuz for years we called them patients but you know, people who'd visit the dispensary and having a lot of tears because they weren't able to afford what they needed to help with their pain. And um, being angry at, you know, the dispensaries or the producers for the high prices and really having to break it down for people. Like, I actually looked at it as like a opportunity as to call it Stoner Civics 101, you know. <laughs> we're trying to, we're to, we always joke, we're trying to make the software Stoner Brew. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But it is, it's a great opportunity to understand how systems run and how we can influence them. And, you know, as individuals, how we have, we're, we have much more power than we think. We don't have to sit back and be like, oh, this is so expensive and it's your fault and it's your fault and it's your fault. It's like, get active. Talk to your, talk, talk to the people in Sacramento, talk to your policymakers and let them know that, you know, You've got a job, you, you get paid, you know, you make money, you're a productive member in society, you use cannabis and you vote, like pressure right? to change the taxes. Yeah. What a, what a human, a human. <laughs> I, I think it's a really, it's a really great way to be able to call people to action because, you know, before I got involved in cannabis, I worked in civil rights, but, you know, I wasn't, I was nowhere, I wasn't in city hall anywhere near as much as I have been since I started doing policy work in cannabis. Although nowadays I'm working from home and we have our oversight meetings via zoom, but still like, it's just, it's a unique opportunity to really in all the areas to get involved. And that's why I just, I so appreciate seeing how things are changing and seeing people in technology really passionate about cannabis and doing the job right and learning more. And like you were saying, like, you know, people who are doing, you know, the programming or, um, you know, on the financial side, handling the software, like actually learning about all the different forms of cannabis and what they are. Like, who would have known that that was going to happen, like, even six years ago? Right. Yeah. No, no way. I mean, no way I'd be sitting here talking to you about this six years ago. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I, I, you told me, let's see, it's, it's, I've been in the industry for nine years now, but if you had told me 10 years ago I'd be talking to you and doing this, I'd say you were nuts. No. Nope. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was definitely doing, you know, working with my colleagues more around, you know, helping well i mean in some ways i guess i still do the same thing it's like i used to say that as a former civil rights professional people like ah you're still doing it you're still working in it but you know we're looking at how to create opportunities for people to work in the industry to profit from it to to have ownership to just having safe and affordable access and there's there's such a amazing social element to it and then you just go into the social with events and why, you know, I think that, like, from a harm reduction standpoint, like, having cannabis at events is, is much more beneficial than, say, you know, having Budweiser there. 
Not that I have anything against that, because I, I, I don't drink a lot of beer myself, but I do like a glass of wine here and there. But it's just, it's an interesting thing. And when we're looking at the future, well, what's what's going, what are you looking at with all, everybody seems to be on hold with events, which is, I think, wise. But on the other hand, everybody's chomping at the bit, and they want to be able to go out and listen to live music and check things out. And as much as, you know, some virtual events have slightly satisfied that itch, it's not the same as being out in the sun. No, it's not satisfied. It's not satisfied that itch. <laughs> no, uh, no, you're right, Peter. <laughs> it's, it's I, I, agree. I, I know, I know. It. I'd love to say that. And six months ago, sure, I just no. I don't think anyone can take any more virtual streams. I know, I know. Well, that's like a, a lot of what, um, you know, my husband is a musician and a lot of his fans are like, you know, are you going to do something virtual online? He's like, that's, that just sounds exhausting. He's like, you know, it's like playing into a void. Right. What what do you think, what are, what are you seeing as far as events in the next year? I mean, and I know, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, so you can't tell me for sure, but... Like, what do you see happening in, and for you, what would be, what's your wish? Um, I mean, they're going to happen this fall, right? I mean, or at least court Q4, I think everyone's pretty much, you know, you can probably guarantee that at some, at some capacity, but maybe full capacity. And, you know, I hope that, I guess my wish is that we don't screw it up. Yeah. And if you think about it, right, you really think about it. I would say that there is no place where people are washing their hands less and are all over each other than a music festival. <laughs> so maybe uh, right? giving hand purifier at the gate might not be a bad idea. I mean, I don't think the gate's enough. I'm talking about a fire hose. Um, <laughs> Like, I'm just saying, right? Like, especially as the day goes on, right? It's like people were, sure, maybe you're stone cold sober and you're going into an event with your mask and your hand sanitizer in your pocket and you're just like, I'm going to be the cleanest ever. But everyone knows as things loosen up a little bit, I, will, I would say being cleanly is one of the things that usually end up out the door. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, that's, I hope that we're far enough past COVID and enough vaccinations and everything else because that you know, all of a sudden it's not these events that somehow put us backwards. Yeah. Well, when I, when I look at like, um, what was it? There was a band that was doing little bubbles that people were sitting in during the concerts. And my first thought was that, that just looks like a hot box situation waiting to happen. Right. <laughs> was it the bare naked ladies that were doing that? I can't even remember. I think it was, um, but uh, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm really, I'm really curious to see. And I just, my biggest wish is for people to be safe. And if you're hearing a cat yelling in the background, it's, it's Jasper. I opened the door for him and everything, but he's, uh, he's telling me that he wants me to, <laughs> to go pet him, and he doesn't always get what he wants. <laughs> That's the joys of working from home. It is, it's an interesting thing with. Uh, with just everything going on, how we've 
we've kind of had to sit back and be like a little bit more patient with like cats meowing in the background or children, whatever, you know, and, uh, and just dealing with like glitches on zoom and technology. It's, it's, it's a, a very interesting time where we've had to be a little more flexible. And honestly, I'm glad that we were able to have cannabis be an essential service during this time, because I think I know that that's helped a lot of people. I know like my, uh, my mother-in-law, she's in her early eighties and she really never used cannabis before, but she started using it during the pandemic because she said that she doesn't use enough to get her high, but she uses enough to get herself back into a mindset where she doesn't feel so like just boxed in. Cause she's, you know, she has a compromised immune system and she's also a very social lady, but she's been at home for a year and it gets you down. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just, I look forward to a day where we can, where all this will be more of a reflection of how we handled everything and everybody's safe and able to be out and about again. I think we'll get there. I think um, so too. Just, just, I think just everyone do it, you know, crawl, crawl, run, walk here. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Or sorry, crawl, walk, run. Don't run before you walk. Sorry. <laughs> that's, Totally. Um, for our listeners, Peter, where how how would they they follow you and find out more about um, your company and also um, the festival at, on social media websites? Yeah. Back IQ, uh, dot com on the backbone side, northernknights.org on the uh, festival side, and uh, onelaghouse.com if you want to. Swing by, have a cup of coffee, smoke a joint, and see what the Southern Humboldt Hills are singing. Oh, nice. It, uh, does the festival have anything on Instagram? Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's at NNM Festival. So Northern Nights Music Festival, and it's at NNM Festival. Oh, awesome. Thank you. And for listeners out there that want to follow the podcast... We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, it is Planted with Sarah, and our website is plantedwithsarah.com. A podcast is also available on Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Amazon, Apple, Google, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also you can also get to Planted with Sarah. Peter, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure talking with you and I'm really looking forward to festivals opening up and being able to check out some reggae at your festival. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, thanks everybody. And, um, we're, you know, we're going to, I won't keep chugging along here. We got this. Keep your head up. Stay safe. Yep. Smile. We'll be doing about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we'd love to have you back anytime. Awesome. Well, hopefully see you guys up on the river this year. I know. And for everybody out there, um, remember we are at two episodes a month. So check in again. We will have another episode in 15 days. And in the meantime, stay safe. It's a crazy world out there. So be good to each other. And until next time, we'll see you then. 